Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm back after a few weeks of pause to talk about what the British Foreign Secretary has described as a possible coming war with Iran to help us make sense of whether this is going to happen in this uh, historic week where Iran has announced that it's going to cease performing parts of its commitments under the nuclear accord and uh, Europeans and Americans are engaged in uh, tense talks as the world uh, looks on. We have an all-star cast. First up is Ellie Garenmeyer, who's a senior policy fellow and deputy head of ECFR's Middle East and North Africa program, our expert on all things Iranian. And joining me down the line from Princeton is Hussein Musavian, who is a former Iranian diplomat who is currently um, a scholar, who's very close follower of the nuclear dossier in particular. And Elan Goldenberg, a former official in the Pentagon who worked on Iran for a number of years and is currently a fellow at the Center for New American Security. So, Ellie, why don't you start by giving us an overview of, of what's going on at the moment? Sure, Mark. So essentially, last week, Iran's National Security Council released a statement that Iran was going to cease compliance uh, with some parts, uh, particularly two elements of its nuclear commitments under the 2015 nuclear deal. And since then, uh, European officials have been scrambling to come up with new ideas or actually implement some of their older ideas and talks with Iran about how to provide Iran with an economic package that can keep delivering at least a small economic relief to Iran under this current maximum pressure campaign uh, of sanctions and pressure from the United States. Now, as part of this statement, Iran's uh, government also issued a 60-day timeline before it moves on to a next phase of reduced compliance, or at least it threatened to do so if the remaining parties to this deal, and that's not just the Europeans, but also the Chinese and the Russians, don't provide a package that's adequate enough for Iran to uh, continue complying with its side of the bargain. Now, in the meantime, uh, the U.S. Secretary of State Pompeo visited Brussels unannounced, uh, or at least very late announced, um, this week to brief the E3 foreign ministers regarding the regional uh, landscape vis-a-vis Iran and the United States. As you may have seen in the recent news, tensions are at possibly an all-time peak with U.S. and Iran in the Middle East. And the European foreign ministers issued some of their most robust warnings yesterday or this week about a potential escalation, unintended one at least, uh, between Iranian groups or or Iranian forces and the US, given the current trajectory we're seeing. So it is a very, very worrisome time, not just for the nuclear deal, but for the regional um, landscape in the Middle East. And we're seeing some heavy political backing from the E3 government and the EU uh, to try and de-escalate the situation. So maybe turn to you now, Hussein. It's a, a year now since um, the US withdrew from uh, from the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, and Iran has stuck to its side of the, the bargain over the last 12 months. What was driving this recent decision by Iranian officials to, to withdraw from parts of the nuclear accord? Um, is it something, is it about Iranian uh, domestic politics or is there a foreign policy agenda behind it? 
No, actually, I believe these days there is a consensus among the conservatives and reformists and the moderates that either the P4 plus one would and should uh, implement the deal, comply with the deal, or it cannot go forever as a unilateral. And nobody in Iran is ready to accept a deal only to comply by the Iranian side and none of the six powers, the signatories of the deal. I think we all agree uh, Iran has been already patient enough. It is for two years since President Trump is in office. From the day one, he has started to fight the nuclear deal to bring sanctions, pressures, not only the nuclear-related sanctions are reimposed, but uh, decisions which are like designation of Iranian Revolutionary Guard, which is Iranian army, as a terrorist group, or the decision to bring Iranian oil to zero, or other uh, uh, sanctions. They have uh, sanctioned over 1,000 individuals and institutions in in last two years. And Iranians, they, they have been always ready to tolerate the U.S. hostilities. But since then, I mean, last two years, they have been waiting to see whether Europeans, Chinese, Russians, they would comply the deal, they would deliver the commitments, the economic benefit for Iran or not. Unfortunately, the the answer is negative because after a year or six months, uh, Europeans, they decided to have a structure like Instex, but now this is for Maltes. They have not been able to uh, have uh, one dollar transaction within this system. It shows how Europe is impacted by the exterritorial sanctions of the U.S. And that's why I think uh, the Iranian patient is uh, getting very close uh, to end. What does Iran need in concrete? I mean, they have set this 60-day deadline to um, the Europeans and others to to act. I mean, what do you think Tehran um, hopes to see in the next 60 days if it is going to um, remain in full compliance with the deal? In the next 60 days, if Iran can see some practical steps not only promises, statements uh, from Europeans, Russians, Chinese, the other signatories on implementation of their commitments, uh, delivering economic benefit for Iran, like uh, importing oil, like banking transactions, because SWIFT practically is closed. The banks, they have closed uh, all banking relations. And they have backed off Europeans, uh, Chinese, Indians to import Iranian oil. Therefore, I think these two fields would be extremely important, the banking relations and the export of oil. If Iranians, they see some practical steps from the other P4 plus one members, they would continue to be committed with the JCPOA. 
Mark, can I just add something to that? In in a recent piece that we had um, last week called 60 Days to Save the JCPOA, um, we, we essentially looked at a couple of areas where there might be realistic movement from the E3 in the coming weeks on this issue. One is to actually operationalize this insects mechanism that was registered and, and announced in January of this year. So it's been months of hard work and I think sincere, genuine effort from the E3 governments to resolve the outstanding problems. But I think it's now really time to accelerate this and have at least a handful of transactions at least in the humanitarian trade sector, which is completely legitimate. There are no sanctions even under the U.S. mechanism on this. Uh, So this, I think, needs to be a bare minimum that the Europeans need to deliver on their side. A second area where I think Iran is already in very deep consultations with the Chinese, but also, for example, the Indians, is how it can continue to export oil after the U.S. made a decision to no longer grant waivers in May. And so um, you're seeing uh, Foreign Minister Zarif uh, having visits to India on this issue in consultation with the Chinese, but also the Russians. In previous um, times, they've considered doing um, a so-called all-swap arrangements where Iranian oil is blended with Russian oil. Um, So I think Iran is looking for piecemeal steps from all the parties that together can provide it with at least a face-saving way to say, okay, well, we don't need to implement the next phase uh, of this threat to to seize uh, partial compliance. So, Elan, maybe we can come to you, because obviously the real action on this dossier is coming not so much from Europe and from Tehran, but from America. Um, John Bolton, the National Security Advisor, has been uh, very much in the driving seat of American foreign policy, he's on record as saying that regime change is needed um, in Iran. How does the Iranian decision play into the US debate? Is it actually helping um, do some of the work of the hardliners in the Pentagon and, and the National Security Council and other places? Well, yeah, well, there's definitely an American debate right now, even inside the administration, about what to do. Look, I think there is unity around the notion of maximum pressure inside the Trump administration, but there's different motivations for that. Uh, I would say Bolton and some of the others around him, and I actually would not really put the Pentagon in that category. I'd say, you know, Bolton and some elements, maybe, maybe Pompeo, although it's not exactly clear where he is, certainly the National Security Council, uh, are in the world of we are going to apply maximum pressure for the purpose of regime change. And then separate from that, you have those, which I think include President Trump, who see maximum pressure as a tool to come back to the better deal that Trump keeps talking about. I mean, yes, the United States in the last few days, and we can talk more about some of the escalatory uh, statements in the region uh, that we've seen, um, and obviously the decision by the U.S. a year ago to walk away from the nuclear agreement and now to start pressing uh, on oil sales, which I think really that decision on not granting waivers or or significant exceptions to China and India was probably really the straw that broke the camel's back and has triggered this entire latest round of conflict, because now you're talking about taking Iranian oil sales below even where they were at the height of sanctions in 2013. But for Trump, he also couples that with giving the Swiss his phone number and saying, hey, I want the Iranians to call me. And time and again, you hear from European partners and others that he is asking to try to connect him in meetings, in bilateral meetings with uh, European leaders over the past year or so, where he says, put me in touch with the Iranians. I want to talk to them. So 
it, there's definitely this debate inside the administration. I don't think Donald Trump is looking for a regime change. He's definitely not looking for another war in the Middle East. That's not what he campaigned on. He actually campaigned on the opposite on that. He campaigned on pulling out of the Middle East, and he likes to keep his campaign promises. It's the one thing that's consistent about him. Uh, but that doesn't mean John Bolton isn't pushing for it. And it also doesn't mean that we don't end up uh, in a miscalculation as the situation escalates where we end up in a war that nobody wants. I don't think Iran wants a war. I don't think that most in the United States want a war outside of Bolton and a small crew around him. But that doesn't mean that you know missteps don't inadvertently lead us there anyway. And in terms of that debate within Washington, how important is the influence of those that, that Zarif called the B team, Israel, Saudi Arabia, the UAE in the Washington debate? Yeah, Zarif calls them the B team because they're led by Bibi. Um, um, it, look, I, I think they matter. Um, they matter a lot in the Trump administration. Obviously, Jared Kushner has very close ties with Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, David Friedman, who is the U.S. ambassador to Israel, is constantly on the phone with Trump on a pretty regular basis. But I don't think they are fundamentally the driving force behind this, um, at least not for Trump. The driving force is a combination of Trump hating everything that Obama did, which means tr and trying to rip it down, which is where the, the nuclear deal and coming up with a better deal and doing it better than Obama did comes in, uh, combined with, at this point, Bolton's uh, fixation on regime change. Like those would be, in my view, uh, the two biggest factors. Now, we've seen, and this is where we start to get into the regional question, right? We've seen in recent days um, now reports of sabotage of Saudi and Emirati tankers. Uh, we saw the American and um, John Bolton putting out a very bold statement just a few days ago, threatening military action uh, if Iran continued or attacked American forces in the region um, at sort of the, the unconventional level with using proxies in Iraq. So we've had this escalation. Um, it's not exactly clear what is happening completely. Um, reports are at least that the that at least from what I can tell, you know, there are credible intelligence reports that Iran is or that Iranian IRGC forces are thinking about, you know, escalating against the United States. Um, but it also seems to me that Bolton's reaction has been a pretty dramatic overreaction. Um, and you've also got to look at where the U.S. is militarily and how much of this is talk and how much of this is. Um, real, right? I mean, yes, we announced we were going to move a carrier back into uh, the Persian Gulf. Well, that carrier was kind of meant to be going into the Persian Gulf anyway. We announced we were putting a Patriot battery uh, back into the Gulf. Well, but we removed four Patriot batteries just six months ago. So if you actually look at the military assets that are moving in place in the region, um, they're not nearly as significant as they're mean made out to be. And I don't think we're just on the verge of another major conflict. Um, you know, I, I think that everybody's calmer than that in some respects, but the talk around it, the hype and, and the bluster, that's what makes me worried and could lead to some kind of miscalculation. So Hussein, maybe we can, uh, before we go back to Ellie on, on, on Europe's role in all this, um, how are these things being perceived in, in Iran? And also, how do the Iranian elites read the way that Trump has dealt with North Korea? Is that something else which is influencing them? I don't believe U.S.-North Korea negotiation has uh, important impact on the Iranian decision-making system, but 
I believe uh, the Iranian leaders, policymakers, they are convinced uh, John Bolton or the 4B team, they are after war with Iran. This is on the record. Uh, John Bolton called for bombing Iran. He wrote a piece published by New York Times. And also uh, when Bibi Netanyahu publicly says, I was the one who asked and convinced uh, President Trump to withdraw from JCPOA. He said, I was the one who convinced President Trump to designate Iranian Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist group. I think we have uh, two extremely important decisions which has escalated the tension. One is the U.S. withdrawal from the nuclear deal, second designation of Iranian Revolutionary Guard as terrorist organization. Now you have the Israeli minister publicly saying, I was the one who asked President Trump to do it. Therefore, Iranians, they see more than influence, you know. They, they have a feeling that White House is getting order from Tel Aviv. And Netanyahu has been advocating war with Iran for many, many, many years. You remember State Secretary John Kerry at least three times said in every meeting with Israelis, Saudis, Emiratis, uh, we had, they were asking us just to attack Iran, attack Iran, attack Iran. If they have been asking Obama to attack Iran, you can imagine Trump with John Bolton. It's golden opportunity for them, and they are orchestrating every possible measure to create a war. Well, Hussein, can I just hop in on one point here, which is just to say that Yeah, Netanyahu is going to say that because politically it's beneficial to him to present this as him being the single driver of all this publicly. I mean, that works for him with the Israeli public, Um, you know, and he has influence. I'm not saying he doesn't, but I'm not sure I would believe his statements that he was the single factor that caused Trump ultimately to make a decision about staying in or leaving the JCPOA. I mean, this is something Trump has been saying for a long time, even before he really had much of a relationship with Netanyahu. Ilan, I I agree with you that President Trump personally is not after war. And I have even said and written op-eds saying that President Trump even is not after regime change. This is my my understanding. I'm convinced personally. But the fact is that uh, there is no doubt about John Bolton's mindset, Pompeo's mindset, uh, MBS, MBZ, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, and the uh, coordination, cooperation, the access between the four Bs, these are uh, uh, clear for everyone, and they all have been after attacking Iran. You know, this is on the record from all of them. Salman okay. publicly said we are going to take war inside Iran, I mean. Well, just one point, which I know Hussein said that the, the Iranian leadership is not looking at the model in North Korea, and I understand why, and I think that there's very big differences, but only to say that Um, At least within the American decision-making process, we had a very similar dynamic going on around North Korea. And a lot of people who were kind of pushing for conflict um, and 
by going directly to Trump with an offer from the South Koreans, um, North Korea managed to fundamentally change all that in a day and lean into the president's predilections to not go to war. So, which isn't to say that Iran should, you know, now cry uncle and necessarily come back to immediate negotiations with the United States. I understand why there's so many dynamics against that. But I think that Iranian leaders should study the North Korean case um, because that's the way to sort of bypass all these other actors, go directly to the president and and get him to do um, something that would be more constructive. But, but I, I want to come back to Ellie on, on Europe's role. But before we do that, I mean, maybe we, we should unpack this North Korean thing, because presumably the big difference between Iran and North Korea is that North Korea has nuclear weapons. So if I was Iranian the lesson I take from that is that you can have very good negotiations with Trump once you've got nuclear weapons. But the, the, the most urgent thing is to, to get nuclear weapons because that's what makes all this talk about regime change very difficult. Well, certainly from a European angle, that's been a very dangerous assumption that they that I think they're worried Iran is being left with, particularly with, from some of the statements on the record statements from Pompeo on this issue. Um, but I do think the Iranians have been studying the U.S. negotiation style under the Trump administration, whether that's under North Korea or with the Chinese or even the Russians. And I think the big question for Iran is, can they really get something out of negotiating with Trump? Uh, um, or is it basically just spats of confrontation, escalation, and then de-escalation again, as we've seen, for example, in the North Korea and the trade talks um, between China um, and the U.S.? And I think another major difference beyond the nuclear weapons side is, in Iran's case, right now, we don't have a willing and able third party honest broker in the way that, for example, South Korea uh, played a role. Europe potentially has this role if they're, uh, if they're kind of willing to step up uh, to play that de-escalation role. Um, and secondly, I think that there is this issue that there are a lot of special interests in Washington that would run and counter any sort of a direct negotiation between Trump and the Iranian government at the moment, whereas that's a very different dynamic when you come to North Korea and the politics of D.C. Sure. I think all that is true, um, especially that last part about the, the challenges of the politics of, of, of Washington. Um, it would come with a much bigger headache for the president. But he does seem to be able to sort of blow up conventional wisdom on his own without and take away all kinds of limitations we all expect from uh, him to have. So while it's all true, I can also see him just saying, I want the big deal. I want the agreement. Um and I actually think that the lesson for the for Iran, at least part of the lesson for Iran, could be that when you get Trump in the room on his own, um, he will make concessions that his advisors won't make. Uh, that's not enough to ever get you to a full deal with the North Koreans, um, but it can certainly de-escalate a situation like this and get Iran some sanctions relief and some space to buy time. Um, but you know, I, I understand why Iran's deeply distrustful of doing something like that, and as opposed to Kim Jong Un, who just by being on the same stage with Trump, that was a big victory for the North Koreans. Um, I think that's kind of the opposite in the, in the Iran case. Uh, so I understand why you know, there's no political benefit for, for, for Hassan Rouhani or Javad Zarif being on a stage with Donald Trump or Mike Pompeo. Uh, so I understand why it's so much harder. But I only make the case, I, I agree with Ellie completely, you need this third, third party mediator, whether it's Europe, 
Could be Russia could also potentially play this role. Um, I think Vladimir Putin would love to play that role, um, but somebody needs to do it. Maybe not China at the moment. I mean, my only question mark with Russia playing that role is, does Russia really have an interest in having Iran and the US on a smooth, open negotiation? Or is it in its interest to actually have a um, tense relationship between US and Iran short of war? I think the Russians, I mean, look, the Russians were critical in the JCPOA negotiations. You talk to a lot of the JCPOA negotiators on the American side, they'll tell you the Russians were the most critical because on this, we saw things similarly. And when we could get with the Russians on the same page, the Iranians would make concessions. Um, and I think for Vladimir Putin, if it was, I think this works, if Vladimir Putin gets to host the big uh, Trump-Ruhani summit in Sochi, like for him, that's a huge win. He's seen as, again, the international player, the great power. Um, and so it, it can work for the Russians. But um, but I actually think one of the biggest limitations for the Russians is just how politically toxic anything having to do with Russia is in Washington, whether Trump could even pull something like that off. That's one of the few things he might not be able to violate. Maybe but, I can ask yeah. Hossein his perspective. I mean, does Iran feel that it needs an honest broker in this circumstance? Iran has never uh, declined uh, the mediation. And I think uh, the big mistake Trump administration was beside uh, withdrawing from the nuclear deal, uh, they left the negotiation table because the P5 plus one meetings at the level of foreign ministers and deputy ministers and expertise in three levels with Iran was really a good opportunity for the U.S. Because as you remember, in every meeting or in majority of the meetings, multilateral meetings between P5 plus one and Iran, Americans and Iranians, they had bilateral meetings. Therefore, I, uh, I'm really surprised when President Trump is insisting on uh, meeting Iranians, negotiation with Iranians, why he left the, the negotiation table and why he missed such a big opportunity. Because even Tillerson, he was not ready to have a bilateral meeting with Javad Zarif uh, in 2017 when there was P5 plus one meeting with the uh, Iranian side in New York. However, uh, I'm sure Iran would would welcome any mediator, whether this is Oman. You remember Oman is mediated between Iran and the U.S. Iranians, they welcomed on the nuclear negotiations. Oman hosted the uh, first direct negotiations between Iran and, and, and the U.S. nuclear talks. It was in Oman 2012. Uh, whether it won't be Iraqis they want to step in or, or Europeans, um, confident Iranians uh, would cooperate. I'd like to come back to the general picture and find out how you, uh, how optimistic or pessimistic you are about this escalation. But before we do that, maybe Ali, we can just have one last talk about what Europe's doing. The Europeans have rejected Iran's ultimatum. It'd be interesting to know how likely it is that they'll move forward on the two issues that you uh, discussed earlier. But also, um, you know, there has been talk in some countries about sanctions coming back in if Iran does make good on its uh, threat to, to, to start resuming nuclear activities. 
Yeah, sure. So the the E3 position so far has been that they're not going to, you know, react or respond to Iran's um, statement about seizing its nuclear commitments until they see a report from the International Atomic Energy Organization, who's going to report um, in the coming weeks um, and months about Iran's implementation of the deal. So I think for now, talks of more sanctions have been parked um, until further notice. But certainly countries like France have, um, not just on this occasion, but on previous occasions in the last year, uh, pushed this line that they would support sanctions on Iran um, should the circumstances not change, whether that's on the issue of missiles or now this latest act on, on the nuclear deal. But I think they're going to find it quite an uphill struggle in the current dynamic to get EU member state consensus on sanctions, um, whether that's snapback of sanctions under the nuclear deal or new sanctions for other issues, uh, because the European position at the moment is very torn between um, the, the, what the US is pressuring certain countries, particularly in Eastern Europe, uh, to take vis-a-vis Iran and others who are somewhat more um, sympathetic to Iran's positioning in the region and, and the maximum pressure campaign that it's under right now and the fact that it's not really getting anything in return for, for its nuclear commitments under the nuclear deal. So that's that's the issue of sanctions. But I mean, I was um, I had a ray of hope really this week when Federico Mogherini, after her meeting with the E3 foreign ministers, said that, um, you know, at high ministerial level, there is now backing to make Instex operational to have a transaction go through it in the coming weeks. Uh, now, we, we run the risk of the Europeans setting themselves a high bar here uh, and leaving the Iranians disappointed if this doesn't happen. But I think at some point, you know, there are lots of complications and complexities around this mechanism. But at some point, the Europeans are really going to have to take a leap of faith and, you know, really operationalize this mechanism. It's never, I think, going to be perfect or um, ever really bulletproof from um, U.S. sanctions exposure. I mean, the U.S. can at any point turn around and sanction Instex. Uh, but but I think right now is time, if, if the Europeans want this deal to survive, um, to take at least some minimal action on, on this front. And I do think that, um, in a way, Iran learned from Trump's uh, playbook. You know, if you remember in January 2018, Trump set the E3 an ultimatum um, on the nuclear deal, which was, you know, come talk to me to make a bigger deal, better deal, or I walk. In the end, it became clear that he wasn't genuine, or at least his opinion was um, easily swayed by Bolton, um, and he left that negotiation with the Europeans. Now, the Iranians have also said it's it's an end to our strategic patience. There's going to be now a, a, a time-bound strategic patience, and that has, in a way, given some impetus, at least from the very high level in governments in the E3, to pay more urgent focus on this issue. Um, And then a final note I would say is, um, I think the Europeans run the risk of watching a potential escalation um, really spiral out of control between the US and Iran. And again, here, I think it's 
gonna if, if we run the risk of that it's going to be unintended on both sides but as Elon mentioned the, the the situation is incredibly tense and Europe really shouldn't be watching this on the sideline we're talking about you know a country of 80 million at the heart of uh, the Middle East um, and and instability inside Iran uh, will have direct consequences for European security and that's something that they should be avoiding by at least offering uh, in a in a much more concrete way um, for some sort of a shuttle diplomacy between DC and Tehran at the moment. So maybe just end with this one very, very quick question to, to the three of you to, to end. There's sort of three main uh, macro scenarios that have come out of the talk so far. Uh, one extreme is, is kind of escalation into a conflict between, um, an armed conflict between Iran and, and the United States. Uh, the other extreme was a grand bargain. And in the middle, some kind of, you know, tension as usual with maybe minor escalations, but things not actually leaving the diplomatic realm. If you had to put percentage of likelihood on those three scenarios, Hussein, do you want to go first? What do you what, what percentage would you put on war on a grand bargain and on diplomacy carrying on? I'm afraid uh, if the role and influence of the four B team. John Bolton, uh, Netanyahu, and Ben Salman, and Ben Zaid continues, uh, we are heading to a possible conflict more than reconciliation and peace and negotiations, because the objective has been declared before that they have been always after war, war, bombing, bombing Iran, and I think uh, the time is running for them because they are going to do it before the, fir- the end of the first period of President Trump. So if you, had to put, uh, if you had to put numbers on those three scenarios, what percentage likelihood would you put on them? No one wants to answer no, that no, question, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to carry on. Uh, I'm going to persevere. Uh, Ellie, why don't you go first then? If, you, if you're the most reluctant, maybe you should get it out of your system. Mark, you never ask analysts to uh, make hardcore predictions. This is not this is not fair. But uh, <laughs> I'm going to say this: I'm more concerned than I have ever been watching this file that we're at risk of a unintended military confrontation between Iran and the U.S. And this should be a wake up call for everyone, uh, particularly President Trump, uh, who's promised an end to the forever wars. I think with enough uh, political backing from the Europeans, we have probably the highest chance of just kicking the can down the road, which is the middle scenario you said. So I would bet on that being the most likely outcome at the moment. Uh, But, you know, really warning a signal that we're close to um, things getting out of hand in the in the regional context. Elan, will you go where the other two refuse to go and put numbers on these three scenarios? No, I'm not going to do that. But I'll tell you, I am more sanguine. I I think that Europe's role right now and something Europe has done masterfully in the last year in a very difficult situation is buy time through genuine engagement with Iran to try and look for alternatives. And yes, I think Europe does, Europe, China, Russia, try to do all that for the next year and a half. We see where we get. And then, you know, if Trump wins re-election, then I think we are very much going to a moment of decision of escalation versus, you know, and conflict versus uh, the possibility of, you know, renewed negotiation. I think eventually, if there's a second Trump term, I think Iran might 
consider that it's time to negotiate with Trump. Um, you know, if if a Democrat wins, then I think there's a lot more space for de-escalation potentially, uh, and hopefully a return to the JCPOA by all sides in some way. But the question is, during the next year and a half, as we as we wait to see how that all irons out, the, the nuclear timelines here are long. This is not an immediate sort of rapid fire co- crisis. It's a slow motion crisis on the nuclear side. Uh, as long as you avoid unintended escalation, which is the big wild card. Um, you know, so, so here, I'll say a percentage. I think unintended escalation, I would put at somewhere like 10 or 15%. That is very high. You know, like usually you don't want unintended escalation at that level. Like, and if not, then I think we buy enough time for the next year and a half, at which point there's kind of a decision to be be made on American leadership, on Iranian leadership a few months later, um, and a pathway then that, that either goes towards renewed negotiations of some sort, either with a second-term Trump or a Democrat, or, you know, um, then the potential of a real escalation as this whole thing heats up to, to, to military. Great. It's been a fascinating discussion. We slightly overshot on the timing, so I will... Um suggest uh, uh, rather than going into a full bookshelf segment i'm going to recommend some fantastic things for for everyone to read which are written by our three uh, discussants here ellie garamaya's piece 60 days to save the jcpoa is on the ecfr um uh, website um hussein uh Masavian has got a uh, a wonderful op-ed in the new york times on the regional issues it's time for the leaders of Saudi Arabia and Iran to talk, it's called. He co-wrote it with Abdulaziz Sagar. And Elan Goldenberg has a piece in foreign policy called Iran's Rhetoric Heats Up. Oh, no, sorry, wrong one. But it was with Liz Rosenberg. Something like, I think there's still time for diplomacy with Iran. We'll put links up to all of these things on our website at ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do let other people know by writing about it on your social media page or ours. And above all, by heading to whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast on and giving us a rating and a review. But for now, from Ellie Garanmaya, Hussein Masavian and Elan Goldenberg and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast this week was Camille Lons and our editor is Vibke Evering.